Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an awesome panel. Kind of kick it over first to Spartan Grown. Thank you, Jack. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Or even better yet, you can send me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can help you with all your cannabis growing questions. If, if not, I can maybe find somebody who can help you. <laughs> It's perfect because uh, tonight we are taking questions. So if you do have questions and you're already here, click on over to the live chat or view all messages, and then you'll be able to see all the messages and then drop some questions in there. Tag us at Cheap Home Grow or whatever particular grower on the panel that you're interested in asking a question to, such as our IPM specialists this evening, Matthew Gates. Welcome. Yeah, everyone. So for me, if you want to tag it, Zenthanol, but most of you already know that. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the chat. I think that we always have, especially lately, we've had some really great uh, conversational points and things. So I'm looking forward to that. So yeah. And if you haven't heard, I do have a, if you're in Long Island or New York, I have a workshop coming up on June 3rd. So uh, the Pestapalooza, I'll put the link in the, in the, um, not the description in the chat, but you can check me out over there and we'll talk about IPM and cannabis and catered too we just got the catering all figured out so i'm excited to have this event and then i'll have some other events um in the future so if you can't make the new york one you can look forward to those i will say catering makes an event so much better if you have professionally catered food uh it, it really just makes the whole experience so much more enjoyable you've got you know good tasty stuff to enjoy throughout the uh session so i'm a big fan of that somebody i was just listening to talking about one of their favorite events they went to all time was talking about how the dude who put it on was actually a professional catering company like uh as his day job so he catered the cannabis event so they always had really bomb food and it was like a kind of small private event but they put on a great show and uh that's pretty awesome so i'm, I'm happy that you got that lined up and the people of the pesta palooza will have something delicious to eat and uh next up i'm going to kick it to uh dr mj who looks like he's in the house with us now i made it Hey everyone, I'm Dr. MJ Coco. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to Pestapalooza when it comes out here to San Diego. Um, last time I saw Jordan River, he was really excited about Pestapalooza. So I think, you know, if, if you can get to that, I highly recommend it. Um, anyways, I look forward to the show today. I, I sort of just got in here, so I'm a little bit like, what the hell is going on? So I'll catch up with y'all soon. We're glad that you were able to make it. I know you were uh, anticipating be a little, being a little bit late, but you actually got here right at introductions at your regular old time. So with that being said, I'm going to kick it next to Noah the Groa. Hey, how's it going, everybody? I'm uh, Noah the Groa from Instagram. Find me there. Two E's there. And happy to be here and get into it. Happy to have you as always. And last and certainly not least of the panelists who's with us, the American one. Hello, Jack, everyone on panel and everyone in chat. I am the American one on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. And uh, yeah, I'm always, it's always good to be here. Glad to see everyone. Happy Memorial Day. Uh, salute to those who honored our country. And yeah. That's about Definitely it. a lot of good, good folks who, uh, as your name is the American one, you got to celebrate that, that freedom that we've uh had earned by many, many great people before us who uh, fought for it. So thankful for all them. And I'm happy that we have multiple days that celebrate uh, things like that. But with that said, I do have a question already from the chat. Seed person one, our upside down clone expert out there has asked, cheap home grow. 
can you reverse a male plant to grow female flowers with something like STS? You wouldn't use STS, but I didn't I know that you're not really asking that. But the product is called Florel, F-L-O-R-E-L. I don't know what the actual chemical is, but um, it does work to change a male cannabis plant into a female cannabis plant. However, this is to look at and smell and get an idea of resin production because that chemical Florel is not something that you would want to smoke or consume. So it would be toxic to then consume the product. So you're not going to get as much as like a smoke report from reversing the female. I don't know of any other products that are out there that are able to reverse a male into a female. They're, maybe you could try stressing it, but to me- Can you get it, the males to produce seeds with that? That'd be a good question. And I, when asked, I've seen a few people theorize and say they were going to do it. And I would think that it would produce all male seeds, which would be interesting. But I've never actually seen somebody go through the process of trying to do that. Like it that. would produce, yeah, masculinized seeds. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there would be much of a market for masculinized seeds now that I thought about it. But I originally what? was thinking that that would be the only sort of, yeah, thing you would want to do that for. But I, I agree with you then, Jack. It, is, it would just be to, and I don't even know if you're going to get a really accurate read on like terpenes and other things like that from, from backing up a male. But but if there were a way, if they could figure out a way to reverse a male to where the the buds could still be consumed safely, that would be a good safety. Like if you're growing regs, you get a male, bam, treat it. Now I get a female. Not a problem. And keep on rolling. Well, I think it would, it would still produce seeds, though. I mean, I, I don't think you'd be able to, like, back it all the way up into only producing female flowers. So just like a reverse female you see oh, there's like yeah. a few pollens yeah. at the top of the rest of the plant like kyle will do one branch because it's so hard to get some plants just to reverse but even the people that try to do a full plant reversal you might get a, a cola or two maybe three if you're lucky and they don't produce near as much pollen as a natural male and they almost always have s1 or self seeds because there's enough pistols still present on the plant that it does pollinate itself so i'm assuming that the male would pollinate itself and seed person followed up saying would they be regular seeds and i think that uh, doc well said they would be masculinized as opposed to feminized which would mean basically it only has a y chromosome to give uh with that pollen and it's not gonna have the x to uh give so essentially you've got all male seeds out of the offspring potentially so no i i'm not sure that would be the case yeah. because it's still xy and it would be an xy on both because they would both have xy so a portion of them would be xx no this is true. You're is true. you're right. You're right. I, Males yeah, do carry I think an X. There's more to be in terms of that, the way that research more on that. Yeah. So maybe I there think. are just reg seeds out there that people haven't <laughs> identified as like this is a reversed male, but it's an interesting no, process. You get three quarters male seeds, anyways. I mean, it, it, when yeah, you yeah. now you'd only get one yeah, quarter would be quarter. The, the XX that you'd require for a female. You'd get That's a quarter would be YY seeds, and you'd get half of them would be just straight male Your seeds. Male. So yeah, you're right. There would be there would be some fem seeds in there. Some, but I still yeah, struggle yeah, to just see the thinking point about it. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. I've had that ratio of like 75% males in actual regs when it's a 50-50. So just think about like how hard it would be for you to find females in that masculinized or masculine heavy uh, batch of seed, and then. I always go back to like, what's the point? What's the purpose? Why would you do it? Why would you go through all that process? Buying an extra chemical, spraying that chemical, reversing the male to become a female when you can just find a female from that same, like if you're growing regular seeds and there's a male and a female, just pick a female out of that same seed, set of seeds that you just popped to see what the females look like. Or I guess like if you have a plant count and you only popped one 
of that thing and you only had one male there's like very specific niche or yeah yeah it, was, it really doesn't make sense. i was just trying to figure it out maybe it would make sense if you didn't want to lose that specific male but even that those seeds would, wouldn't be an exact copy of that male that you had so it'd be useful to, yeah I think it would be nice to do maybe one time with um, if you're a breeder and you have a male that you're working with a lot and you just wanted to kind of see what does this kind of plant express on the female side of things? What could it maybe help me to, you know, like, I don't know. I guess, but wouldn't it terpene be- you're looking for is terpene expression. If you're not getting any of that in, in this male, then you're like, okay, this male is probably not going to help me get to that terpene <laughs> expression. You know, Wouldn't it be easier to just cross it with some things though, Spartan, and like? See well, what- that would take a lot longer. I don't know if it would be easier. It, it might be easier for sure. It would but- be more accurate in terms of what the plant is going to contribute as a father to the next. Yeah, but you'd have to make multi. I mean, if you're like plant count again, you'd have to make multiple crosses. Like you'd have to cross it to multiple different females to see. Okay, that's what this male is is imparting in all of these. I'm seeing this common trait. That's going to take multiple runs unless you can throw them all in at the same time. I guess I'm just not sure that the flowers, the, the, the reversed male is going to produce are really going to tell you that much about sort of what the offspring, the, the female offspring from that male are going to look like or taste like or, or anything. I, I think that the knowledge you would gain from that is really limited. I like a Wiener DWC says man terps, eh? And then a seed person says my plant will have two dads. So, I mean, that can make it more popular in certain communities. And it's funny. Hey, you I can have a, a super male. We've talked about it in the past, but you can have a YY. Is that nothing, that's with plants? This. Government yeah. grants. I mean, the funny thing is that you never hear about that on the feminized marketing. Really. That's, that's my only point. So I guess the, the answer yeah. to the question is we can do it. We just, none of us can really figure out a good reason to do it. Yeah, certainly not, not, uh, not really from a cultivation standpoint, you know, well, maybe from like, like a novelty standpoint, perhaps. Yeah. If like Spartan <laughs> said, if you could make it be smokable and fully, <laughs> if it was smokable and then a, a full on female from whatever you gave to it or did to it. Then it might have some merit if you popped a bunch of egg seeds, had a bunch of males you weren't going to breed with, and you're like, oh, I'm going to turn all these males into females and then have a little bit of bud, even if they produce less than a natural female. Um, that could be an option. But from what I know right now, that's not now, the case. With now that you guys got my brain tw- uh, thinking, if you uh, do that a couple of times, maybe get all male seeds and like somebody you don't like, just give that uh, keeps asking you for free seeds, give them a big old packet of all those male seeds. But like I was saying, man, why climb the mountain? Because it's there. Why why flip a clone upside down and make it root and grow it out? Because it's there, right? See person? Yeah, he's, just, he's, he's pushing person. the edges of, of what's possible. And I do appreciate it. I, I wish that he does this because all the other people that I said, like I said, they said they were going to do it and then something came up and they didn't do it for whatever reason. So I would like to see somebody actually go through the process of reversing a male to a female, making seeds you know, with it. Me and seeing Gene, what the offspring are like right me gene has, has reversed males uh but he didn't i don't think he made seeds with it but he just uh i think he just let them go really long and maybe cut keep cutting the light down until they like kind of harmed out i think I, i'm not yeah don't quote me on that but he did discuss about reversing males before i know that we do have a another question unless uh noah or anybody else has any final thoughts on uh the kind of earlier discussion Nope. 
All righty. Well, I will go ahead and pass this one to Doc. It's from Bingo Gringo. Cheap Home Grow. Uh, can bar-style LED grow lights cause deficiencies in the top and mid leaves, similar looking to phosphorus deficiency, showing copper-colored edges? No, what a good question. Yeah. Right, Doc? We were talking about it in the chat, smarts, about LED lights and the way the nutrients are they're taking up different. No, Doc? Tell us. Causing the no. deficiency? I saw that on Small Poker Show that there was like, yeah, nutrients designed for LED lights. I, I definitely think that that was just a, a marketing gimmick. I don't think that the plant needs special nutrients, whether you're growing under LED lights. This question, yeah. If you by know, special, they mean the really right amount. Burning your plants with light, if you're giving them like way too much light, and we're talking like above 2000 PPFD you'll get some pretty funky looking stuff on that on the upper leaves that looks a lot like really severe nutrient deficiency issues so it's really a plant's reaction to those excessive levels of light i don't know if that's what you're experiencing in that situation but this would be but the led bar it's kind of hard to get those kind of densities but you certainly can on some models um i'm not sure that that's what's going on there though but when you know you're giving too much light, like if you're giving that much light, you know you're giving too much light. Yeah, I'm not sure about how the um, like, like I'd be curious to see the question phrased in a different way, but like certainly they don't like cause a deficiency or anything like that. But I, I feel like that's the closest. It exposes also what Dr. it. Coco is saying it exposes deficiencies. So like when somebody's like, oh, I was growing under uh, HPS or metal halide or CMH. And I had it 20 inches away from my plants. And then I got this bar light and I was told to hang it 12 inches away from my plants. They switch it in and then they're whatever, their EC is too high or too low or whatever it is. Then the plants start cycling way more because they have proper PPFD across the entire canopy. They have more light, better quality of light. And yeah, you're right. It's it's a it's a deficiency like me walking into acid rain shows that my skin isn't made of chitin <laughs> and it's gonna melt away. I guess in that way, you're right. It is deficient. Well, and in, um, in this case, like it, it is just accelerating our ability to diagnose that the plant doesn't actually have enough of a type of nutrient, or maybe it has too much and it's being locked out. So if it was under a different light, it might not be cycling as quickly or have going through the uptake demands that it would under an newer light. If you've really increased the amount of light overall that you're giving to your plants, and, and that often happens when you switch mm -hmm. to an LED bar array, then you're increasing the average PPFD. It really may be putting pressure, like Jack's saying, on other aspects of your grow. And, and you know, we'd look at that. We want to know where this, you say at the in the at the top and in the midsection of the canopy. In the midsection of the canopy, I'm less likely to, to think that it's anything directly related to the light, but it could be, like Jack's saying, something about the overall levels of light that you're giving, how much pressure that's putting on you know, transpiration, nutrition, other things within your grow. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? There's like a, there's a, uh, there's a space in which you have this sort of metabolic stress. And then like, if you go further, then you start to get like physical problems, like getting burned and that sort of a thing. That's a good point. I think it is important to, to note that it is a very common problem in the home growth setting to where it's over it's an overlighting issue can cause some issues so one of the the most common 
One of the most common suggestions I give people when I see weird things going in the top of the canopy is, hey, just try dimming your lights for a few days and, and don't do anything else differently and see if anything improves, <laughs> because that's a common one. I want yeah, to it's say that that's usually not really overlighting, though. It, yeah, I mean, unless they're actually overlighting. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Doc. No, hardening off, right, Doc? It's just like a shock to them. If you take them from your fluorescence and put them underneath a high output LED light, yeah, they might not be ready. Off a little, right? Yeah. They might not be ready, but I'm I'm back towards Jack. I think there's a lot of ways of growing your plants that provide adequate nutrition under relatively low average PPFDs. And if you try growing like that under a higher average PPFD, it's going to put stress on your nutrition. And I would argue that the, the limit you're hitting there and the problem is something related to the nutrition, not necessarily something related to excessive levels of light. It's excessive for your style of, of nutrition, maybe. Right. Like a bag soil. A bag soil only it's has like so for much. For your environment, your light's yeah, too yeah. strong. <laughs> right, but you could also solve that potentially by, by giving the plant what it's lacking. Right, right? by moving all the other sliders. That's, yeah. Like right. Well, that's what we eventually do with carbon dioxide. Like we assume everything else is good and it's carbon dioxide is the limiting factor. So if we want to increase the light even more, we need to bring up the carbon dioxide to sort of match that. But there's a lot of other things that if you're hitting light limits, if you're basically hitting your saturation point at densities lower than, you know, a thousand micromoles peak or, or better yet, probably 800 micromoles average then, um, you know, it's probably something else besides carbon dioxide. And it's not necessarily just light, but certainly turning down the light in that situation can prevent well, yeah. that situation from happening. Yeah. I want to always... say, I think, I think the plane adjusts also like it, like in uh like uh, Jack was saying in bag soil, if you don't want to add salt nutrients, you give, just keep upping the light a little bit, the plant will grow more roots to be able to get more nutrients to adjust to the more light in my, you know, it'll make adjustments, but if you shock it into it, it'll screw it up, I think. That's my opinion. I think if you go slower, but um, like this is kind of hard to get around for me. Liebig's Law of Minimums, it's a 19th century. Real German ones know is Sprengel. Real ones know is Sprengel. Sprengel, Anyways. whatever, whoever actually figured it out. A lot of science gets miscredited, but the idea is what stands to me. The, the philosophy of Okay, look here, we've got your yield is like water kind of pouring out of uh it's it's a barrel for anybody who's listening. There's slats and the barrel will only fill to the lowest slat. So in this case, they have like magnesium and sulfur look like they're the lowest slats. So if the plant doesn't get more of those, it doesn't matter if you're giving more light, less light, or you're improving the soil conditions, uh, you know, better management of the water, uh, more sodium, magnesium, it's it's only gonna matter to a certain point. Because well, looking at this still, go ahead. Sorry, Jack. Let's like, keep looking at that for a second. Now, I want to make a point about one thing while we're looking at Liebig's there. Or that analysis. Yeah, that, 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 that draw. So light here in our grows is like the gas pedal, right? You want light to be the limiting factor in, in your grow. If whenever light isn't the limiting factor, you're going to be burning your plants. So our, our goal as growers is to keep all the rest of those things should be higher up than, than the light. And CO2 is almost always going to be the lowest, you know, the, the first one light passes as you increase the, the, the light height should be carbon dioxide. 
if it's passing some other thing, then I would argue that's the problem probably with the horticultural plan, not necessarily just that you're giving it too much light. Um, but when you're looking at this, light should never be up sort of above the other ones. Light is the gas pedal and you want light to be the limiting factor. That is a good point. And um, it goes sort of into our next question. And I think this is kind of related. You kind of touched on it. Clay Pipe says, uh, why does Canna have a specific nutrient line for cocoa made from husks and fibers? Their standard cocoa line is specifically for cocoa peat, which is the finest or fines. That's what they wrote. Yeah, so cocoa husks, I mean, it all comes from cocoa husk. So as the cocoa husk breaks down, like the bigger pieces are called chips. The, the stringy pieces are fibers. And as the fibers break down into like little particles, um, that's pith or peat, cocoa peat. The peat holds a lot more water. Um, the fibers allow sort of water movement through the, the media. The chips have the best air ratio. Um, so, or allow the best sort of spaces to be formed in, in the, the media. So good blends generally for horticulture is a, a, a mix of all three. There'll be um, chips, fibers, and peat. We don't want too much peat because it'll hold on to too much water usually. Um, although some cultivation strategies want a higher peat level, some crops that want higher or water levels and can tolerate lower oxygen levels will do better with a higher peat blend too. Um, but I always rinse out some of my peat to sort of get rid of it every grow as I'm recycling and hold on to those larger pieces, the fibers and the chips. So there's different, you know, they have different characteristics and some people may want to, to use them for slightly different purposes. It's important to acknowledge what you're working with and the management practices required for each. And uh, I've seen it with peat over time it definitely starts to break down but cocoa is the same way it gets finer and finer grow after grow after grow to the point that in especially in organics you start to get almost like a like a sludge or like a clay type buildup so um i think it's important every now and then to go through and, and re make sure you're applying some aeration i like rice yeah. hulls and a little extra pumice but um just to make sure that there's water air and roots can move comfortably through the soil because if it's a giant clay block you're not going to be growing too much in it for too long yeah, it's just like actual soil, which is like sand and clay and silt, right? The the clay and the silt is really like fine particle sizes. And so usually when we're planting a garden outdoors or when we're growing in fields outdoors, we want sand. We want a sandy mix, which is like larger particle sizes. Um, roots have an easier time growing through larger particle sizes. Smaller particle sizes hold more water. So... That's generally true, regardless of the media. It's definitely an important balance. And it's funny when you go through like any uh, flower gardening section, almost all of them, like when you look at the seeds, it'll say like, it wants a like good draining, like sandy soil for a lot, like a yeah. huge portion of the the flowers that I've looked at. And I've looked at a few hundred different ones. And it's like almost always that's the case. There's rare exception to that. So, and, and cannabis is, I think, one of them that sort of performs in a similar environment. So it makes sense that uh, it works just like many of the other ones. But Smoke Your Own has a question in regards to a UV bud light is burning a flower plant near it. And I think uh, we might need some follow-up, like what UV light are you using? How far away is it? What's the wattage? Uh, how much, you know, 
power what is it? UV. Yeah, what UV, you UVB, know, what, UVC, what UVA. Light is. Yeah, so uh, smoke your own if you can follow up with that one and, and let us know a little bit more about it. But I would say I suspect uh, it's probably just too much PPFD if he's got a UV light that's high nanometers, so like 395 or something like that, which a lot of the UV lights are. Um, it could just be too much light, period. Very well could be the case. I think uh, if he has it on a separate timer, you could run it for less hours a day. You could raise it if that's possible. Um, dim it if that's possible. But I wouldn't put a UV light in your like right next to your plants, though. Correct. Just generally, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, in the vicinity because you're attracting them to your plants. So, but it also depends on the setup. Like you know, is it like uh, yeah? In other words, yeah. Tell us what the the UV trap is like. Is it UV trap? Well, they're saying UV bud light. So I think this might even oh, be... Oh, shoot. I misread, uh, the, I like, misread the question. Yeah. Have so. you guys seen those finishing bulbs for like CMH? It might even be like a 10K CMH. They market those as UV. I, I might even have an old one up in my closet. A buddy gave to me. He's like, oh, yeah, dude. Throw these in for the last week or two of flower. And fluorescent tube fixtures that are sold as UV supplemental bars. And if you get them too close to your plants, you can burn your plants with them. No bueno. I think this kind of harkens back to our conversations of uh, when we talked about is UV worth implementing in your grow? And oftentimes I'd just rather implement a higher quality light or, you know, just more uniform spread of that light in the ranges that we know for sure are providing benefit. Yeah. Because like if you look at like a Brandon Russ grow or any of these other like, you know, pick a successful grow out there, almost all of them are not implementing UV and they're having incredible test results, incredible uh, photogenic buds, if that's what you're looking for, uh, very enjoyable to smoke flower. So like all of the metrics that any real, home, like most home growers are going to care about, um, you don't need UV to meet it. You can get it with, you know, selecting some good genetics and just growing the plant well under regular old LED lighting um, in cocoa or soil or whatever your media is, you can produce dank buds with no UV at all. Uh, there's small amounts of UV within the led lights anyway but it's in the the significant part is the par and the epar ranges it's not the the uv really it there's some studies that we've looked at extensively uh, on this very show in the past several different shows actually we've looked into it and stuff from the 70s to now and and there's still more you know i, I recently quoted the one i think it was like dutch passion and, and migro but again you kind of got to be look at it a little with a grain of salt when you're getting data from people that are selling the products and saying that it's going to improve your stuff. So uh, I'd love to see third party really well done science that shows me that UV is like the absolute thing that you need. But until then, I think I'm just going to keep, you know, implementing the I'd love to see high quality light. That said that it was beneficial at all. Like, I mean, I pay attention to the, the, the science on light. I haven't seen anything that makes me think that we should be using UV with our cannabis plants. I see lots of growers who believe that, for like there's that one like, old study there's an old study that says it proves it uh yeah i'll bring it up for you doc the thc percentage we looked into that yeah, what are you yeah, talking yeah. about the one with like yeah. the hot hemp? but it's old so right. and there's been other yeah. studies that have shown sort of the opposite effect it's just like everything yeah, i know about uv is how it damages dna and shit so it's like yeah I don't know it's how just, it can be better it causes it to protect it more with the thc perhaps but they haven't don't figured out how so much no they try to damage your dna they've tried small no, don't go don't use it on yourself 
They try small amounts. <laughs> People, that, Bruce like, Bugby like, has done a lot of light research, know, um, and he, he looks into the studies that have like it could be a half an hour a day, one hour a day, two hours a day, four hours a day, six hours a day. They've studied as little as possible to as much as possible, and every single one of those circumstances in modern times when they've done it with a double blind type test and they and they control right. for all the other conditions control, shows yeah. negative right. results ne- well, not only just like negative but very negative yeah. in a lot of cases definitely does something because like uh strains that don't get the pink hairs inside will get it from the sun i don't know if it's you i get pink hairs on my that's, butt inside that's definitely blue true light. i'm with telling but, that's true for sure i've blue seen light that. can do that, that kind of stuff. i use so, a blue you LED. Know, i'm not saying uh fry yourself with some uvc in your grow room but there's people that use it that guy on uh, gml uses it has uh, a certain uncle version, reefer like 10 minutes every two hours or something and then someone else was using it on it and it turned their blood there's all sorts of gimmicks sold with grow lights let me just say that there's all sorts of gimmicks sold with grow lights for marketing reasons that they're trying to chase like you know the consumer dollar and convince everybody that they've got the latest thing that you're not going to grow the the fieriest fire without their special light and they've got the special technology and a lot of them are going after uv like that with just a bill of goods i mean they don't have any science to back this up um and push comes to shove, I talk to the grow light companies and they're like, well, you know, the consumers are demanding this. So the reason the grow light companies are putting UV in their lights is because consumers are demanding it, not because there's some sort of like science. So like, let's all stop asking for that. Things that like we have no evidence actually work because it creates this visual, vicious cycle where like we think it's something we want. Manufacturers will cater to that because I mean, they don't care about the science. They just care. They'll about sell you me. whatever you want to buy. Yeah, exactly. And and you'll see grow lights come out now, like a lot of them that have like one UV diode just so they can advertise having UV light. But I mean, it's it, it's so duplicitous. I mean, it's just like they're toying with you. They want to use it for marketing. They're not even if it was beneficial, they're not giving you enough to like do anything with. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think the beneficial aspect would be like more like uh, destroying, you know, like destroying fungus, you know, just it's, it's good at destroying sure. shit. Yeah, all that one really light that the intra light or whatever that claimed to be some IPM light, and we still have uh, I'm oh, so it's proprietary. No, the spectra are proprietary. You can't ask too many questions about it, apparently. Well, my attitude about that, Matthew, and I think you agree with me, right, is if it's if it's effective spectrum, it's dangerous. And yeah, yeah. Not dangerous. It's not effective. And it, it yes. would be really it would be really problematic if there were companies out there adver- suggesting that you use these lights pointing up at yourself and your plants and whatever and running them without protection and, and like. Yeah, no, that's not that. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, there there are effective ways to use UVC for for IPM for sure, but that's not one of them. There's UV in in the sunlight and there's still molds outdoors. So uh, if that's what people are are counting on, then let's stop counting on that. And I think that we have an interesting. Go ahead, Doc. Well, let Matthew. Matthew wanted to jump in on something there. Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. And, but you're right. And and a lot of things can get away from UV. Like that's the that was such a big filter. I was just gonna say, like my something we've talked about a few times before, which is like remember, like a long time ago when things were trying to get onto the Earth, like one of the big filters for not being able to do that was surviving the sun, right. the hellish sun, when there was no other cover, right? 
And so like, that was like really important limiting factor. We just talked about limiting factors, right? Um, so, and that's the other thing is like, like you say, you have to dose it right. You have to like, you can't just uh, be loosey goosey with how you apply the UV. Um, yeah. Cause like, cause like we, like we said, even without UV, even with just a massive photon, you know, the rain of photons onto the plant is enough to da- literally damage it physically. And even before that metabolically, like Jack said, so UV is like that cranked up even more. So it just, yeah. you just knowing that little bit of knowledge tells you that, you know, the little pinpricks of light and this one's more powerful than others, these spectra. So they're literally diving through the body and smashing through the, like Spartan said, the DNA and make it, and, and also boiling, like at a cellular level, like the heat is just like, yeah. you know, go, going through. So that's what you're looking at. That's what's happening, right? It's not great. Yeah. Wear sunscreen. Well, and- I, I wanted to jump on DWC. <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking this, you know, UVC doesn't exist outside. You go out on a bright, sunny day, you're exactly. not bombarded with UVC. UVC is filtered out in the ozone layer and in the atmosphere and like with glass, and like, you know, pretty much anything UVC doesn't go through. It's very, um, or, or gets absorbed into. Um, so it gets filtered out. We're not, you're introducing something that doesn't really exist in nature. And the the UV light that, yeah. that does exist is all higher wavelength light. And so there are, there are some photosynthetic benefits of running like 395, which is like right up against par, which is 400. I mean, 395 nanometer light is pretty much as photosynthetic as 400 nanometer light. So you're going to get a benefit in terms of, of some photosynthesis, but you're not it's super special light for any other reason other than it's just... It's across a threshold that we've arbitrarily labeled sort of like between 400 and below 400 and 400 is like the way we count. So that's important to us. And like just below that now that's called UVC. And now that's what they're selling mainly are 395 nanometer chips, which are just like barely UVC. And they're much less efficient than the 450 nanometer chips, which are blue um like much less efficient so and the blue does the same work if you are looking for like doc or uh, tau you said earlier oh his plants turn purple i have plenty of plants that turn purple am i still here you can use 440 nanometer 440 nanometer blue 440 nanometer blue okay specifically you guys see this right am i showing no you're not you're not we're not seeing your screen i think that has to be uh don't no, multiple yeah, are allowed yeah. to share at one time so he can if he wants to share a screen he can share a screen but what yeah, i was going to say is there's, right. been, there's been research that 440 nanometer blue creates higher anthocyanin production in plants so you don't need uv to create more purple blue is enough to do it blue is just okay. like doc was saying even 440 nanometer blue is enough to do it it doesn't even need to be the 395 or 400 it could be 40 above that which is well within the par range and there's so, so it has much photosynthesis and other effects well, I mean, it's just so much. It's like twice as efficient to make 440 or 450 nanometer versus 400 or 395. It's like twice as efficient to make the light. You get twice as much of it. I'm just playing devil's thought. advocate and saying that there is, uh, you know, writing that says it doesn't. One study from 19. Look, well, scroll up to the top. Let's see what year it is. 1987. 1987. 1987. So all the research that we've done so, in the past, how many years that hasn't supported this? Well, I don't know. What was but, the source of the UV light? But what was the cause? What was the, 35 did they have years like of a research that doesn't support this. 
Well, all right. So at the end, it says, therefore, it appears that other factors may contribute to the UVB insensitivity of vegetative cannabis. Nevertheless, the increased production of Delta 9 THC in flora tissues, where this compound is most concentrated of drug type plants upon UVB irradiation, may result in more reproductive success for drug type rather than fiber types, cannabis sativa, and high UVB environments. We see that that's the conclusion. We just don't agree with this study. And when I'm interested, because of subsequent studies, so I'm interested about what was the source and the wavelength of the light that they're studying. It looks like UVB. So that would be down in the low 300s. I put it in the, uh, I put the thing in, in our chat here. I'll, it uh, says UVB. It does. Yeah, go to the materials and methods. There you go. Yeah. I'm interested in the yeah. source of the lighting. Right there. Uh, we looked back at this before. FS4, UVB radiation, Westinghouse FS3 sun lamps. Yeah, so it's it's like a, a HID bulb. So there's a large spectrum. It's not even an isolated spectrum. Mm. Right. They determine the spectral irradiation with some meter. Right. So this is what's happened since like 2000, 2005. LEDs got on to the point where we could start making this light really reliably at really specific wavelengths and being able to redo a lot of the research that was that had been done where they weren't able to very effectively control the wavelengths. Oh, that they were everything. Studying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we that's why we now use EPAR, for example, because like we've shown very specifically, they've shown very specifically that those wavelengths now do generate photosynthetic responses equivalent to other wavelengths of light. Um, and they've tested UV and found not the sort of beneficial effects that, that you're showing in that previous study. There you go. So Doc, yeah. do you think we learned everything? We, they now they've isolated pretty much everything, right? They're not going to find out much new anymore. No, they're going to keep finding shit out because here's the thing, they blend spectrums. So it's like it, it just like we found out with the Emerson effect when you gave a 660 nanometer light by itself, it was let's say a seven out of 10. When you gave 730 nanometer light, it was like a, a two out of 10. But when you put them together, it's like a, a 15 out of 10. It had a way Entourage stronger effect than stuff. either one of them individually. Okay. So, UV so it's may, infinity may potentially. Infinity. In terms of energy transfers, right? Um, but we can continue to get better. Like we certainly did that with the lighting. We went from lighting that was about 40% efficient in terms of the energy transfer to like 80% efficient. We're not going to like maybe be able to make another leap like that. We can make maybe small little gains up from there. And that's true with a lot of other aspects of, of sort of maximizing or optimizing production in these ways. Like, you know, there's some ways that plants are really not very efficient. Maybe we can improve the efficiencies of them and, and pick up quite a lot, but you can't get more than 100%, right? So you, you can only kind of increase the, the, the efficiency of the energy transfer um, up to about 100%, especially... When you're thinking about it in an indoor cultivation space, it's really fascinating because like we have energy in that we could literally measure with a, a voltage meter, right? 
Um, so how much of that energy can we convert into photosynthate and, you know, the, the secondary metabolites that we're actually going for? Um, I think we have some places along that chain to still pick up a lot of efficiency, but some other places we've pretty much maxed out. I would totally agree with that, Doc. And I just think it's kind of cool when we do come to these sort of um, moments where we find ways to eke out more efficiency. Like for a long time when we got into the chemical fertilizers and, and nutrients like that, we're like, wow, this is like the peak. We can produce so much food. We're going to be able to feed the world and ourselves. We're not going to have starvation, this and that. And it did provide a lot of you know st stable production for a long time. And it's still implemented at huge scale. But then we are now more recently finding how to use things like microbes to basically um, unleash what nutrient is within the soil. So maybe you don't have to use as much and you can make it more biologically active to the plant um, by using certain consortiums of microbes and things like that. So where we thought there was a hundred percent of efficiency of like, okay, I poured X amount of sulfur or nitrogen or whatever into the soil, uh, only so much is gonna be uptaken by my corn or cannabis or whatever. Um, we can start to tinker and experiment and think, oh, instead of using you know, 100 pounds of nitrogen, we'll use 60 and then water in microbes every week. And then that's going to achieve the same or better results. So it's cool that we're able to, um, as much as we might think we're like close to that pinnacle, sometimes there's another precipice up there once we get to that point where we're like, wow, we're really crushing it. And it's like somebody within that really solid phase figures out a way to do it even better. And that's like when we go from that 80% to the 90%. And uh, we, we are seeing it. The diodes get slightly, slightly more uh, efficient. The cords, even like things like that, are they're going to get more efficient. Um, our, as far as, uh, the we, other we have more questions, it, but yeah. The other side of it is, is, are we going to make the plants more efficient at turning those micromoles into cannabis, right? Um, and there's some ways to, to, to do that a little bit. Like we could waste a lot of micromoles and we want to try to not like waste them. We want them all to be like, you know, hitting a plant and being used for photosynthesis and all the rest of that. So we think about kind of optimizing those things too, but yeah, there's, there's limits. And that's where people start playing with those things with like PGRs and stuff to try to like goose the numbers and get the plant to be more efficient. I almost um, feel like foliar feeding, I'm almost like goosing it. But at the same time, I feel like maybe I'm just getting it to its full potential with that. And it's not quite as uh, the same as PGRs or things like that. But uh, there's always going to be a limit. And we're always going to keep trying to push it. So it's fun to see where we go with that. Before we get too far away from the UV light thing, I just kind of I'm kind of picking up that flag of one thing that kind of is irritating to me, at least in the growing scene and the organic growing scene is people, some people it's like religious, like it's religious fever, you know? And when I see statements, like I've seen in chat, when we were talking about UV light about, well, what about in nature? You got UV light hitting everywhere on the planet. Well, that's not even the case. <laughs> that's not the case. UV does not hit everywhere on the planet. Um, I mean, we got a uh, an ozone layer that protects us that's pretty thick in some areas where UV doesn't get through. You got elevations that are pretty low that don't get a lot of UV or any UV throughout the whole year. So there's absolutely places in nature that don't get UV light and plants grow well there. So it's not one of those things to where we're... And that's another thing that I, it's like, if you're growing plants inside, you're already not mimicking nature. <laughs> I mean, you're already, what you're trying to do is you're trying, you're trying to just 
um, grow that plant as best you can inside. It's not so much mimicking nature. It's just trying to optimize that plant growth. So yeah, replicate mindset from trying to mimic nature, because I, I like the idea of mimic nature and understanding all of that. But you have to also remember you're not in nature when you're inside in pots, you know, under artificial lighting. Yeah. Right. Controlling the light cycle is a big thing. And, and speaking of that, uh, being in nature, uh, Spartan Grown and Xenthanol were asked earlier from, let me scroll up and see if I can get the name from our commenter. Oh, it's JP from NB. It says at Cheap Home Grow, they tagged all of us essentially. Uh, I've heard people say if you take cannabis starts and put them outside with overcast conditions for a few days, it can cause them to trigger. And I'm assuming they're meaning into flower. Is that true? Yeah, we we there were some other follow-up questions um that, that JP had mentioned, which was that like they had basically heard that people take starts, put them outside for a few days and they trigger. They hadn't experienced it, but they had heard that. They thought it was kind of uh unlikely because no, like it, wouldn't they likely. still get the light? Like exactly. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That's, you still the get sunburn on a cloudy day. Is because they usually put them out when the light hours outside are 12 hours or close to it. So they're actually put into a flower light cycle, even though it's sunlight, it's still 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness. Yeah, exactly. You can put and, out your plants out and get them flowering yeah. early in the spring. Yeah, they still get, get the light. And then they re-veg. And it triggers them into flower when you do that. Like going from 18 and 6, especially. Yeah. But yes, yeah, seedlings it's... usually do better because seedlings usually sprout like shortly after spring, which they're not going to hit maturity to a point where they're going to flower anyway. They're still going to stay in veg the whole time. So Just think about it as from... age of the plant. I mean, if you are vegging Clones, for 18 yeah. and 18 on and, and your plant is this big and it's five days old and you put it outside, it's going to tolerate a lesser uh, window of, of light hours than if you've been vegging it for three months and it's this big mother plant and you stick it outside after it's been three months vegging under 18 hours then you stick it under less than that okay that one might flip that one might go flip on you but starts i think you're, you're pretty safe and another thing if you wait until there's more light hours which yeah you got to harden them off anyway you want to like put them in the shade for a little while or like an overcast time because it's like taking a person that sat in their office until August or whatever, June, June 20th, and then have them go out to the beach in the sunlight all day. They're going to come back burnt, sunburnt like crazy, you know, and they'll mess up your plants. I've seen it happen. Brian, for uh, by the way, I just wanted good to good questions, everyone in the chat, by the way, um, but in copying some good ones. So if you have some cool ideas, you know, put drop them in chat, I'll get them. And stick around because we are going to get to them. But uh, Brian, 420 p.m. says at the equator, the sun is 44 percent visible light, 3 percent ultraviolet. The remainder is infrared of the 3 percent UV, 95 percent is UVA, 5 percent UVB. And um, so but what my comment in response to that was that yeah. it depends on the day and the elevation. So depending on where you're at, like if you're on a mountain, it's going to be different than if you're on a beach. And yeah. it, the amount of sun that's shining on that day we have a UV index. I can look it up on my weather app every day where I'm at in the same city. And the UV index is different on one day to the next because the sun is literally shining brighter through the clouds than other days. And it, the UV does come through the clouds because people still get some on the cloudy day. Yes, a little comes through all the time, no? 
Yeah, because we're literally getting light, right? You know, it would yeah, be yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it could be cloudy, but it's not pitch black. I'm dark. Right. I mean, I've been under some cloud storms where it gets like, dark, dark, like, yeah. it feels like a real cloud. thunderstorm. Yeah. Like they'll get nasty dark, like black, black clouds. But uh, most of the time, when you see a cloud, it's like you can still see the light. I want to say something else just to put a real button on that UV thing. Brian's comment brings this up to some extent. Infrared, far red, 700 and higher is more important than UV. And I'll get behind your desires to want to like play around with, with you or with far red light. Um, there's far more of that coming at you from the sun outdoors. And if you think about like, what am I missing from my lights indoors versus outdoors in the sun? It, it's 700 plus. It's not the 300, you know, UV light. It's the 700 plus longer wavelength light um, that we don't give a lot of in a lot of grow light. So I'll support those arguments. If you want to be, there's some big difference and we need more IR. Now there's, there's issues with giving too much of it during veg, your plants will grow really tall and lanky. Um, but certainly during flowering, I think we could, we could play around with that. And I think that that might, um, noticing good results with playing around with it. Bugby nice has great power. research on it. He's done such specific research. He has a par far sensor. So he has the par rating and then the far, like far red. And he can specifically tell you like, oh, you want this ratio. I think it's like 10% of your light at the most, but it's more like 5% is enough to get the 730 nanometer, which is the most commonly implemented, but anywhere from 700 to 750. I think it even goes up to 799 to be considered until 800. Then it becomes uh the heat one infrared heat but 700 to 799 well, is far red the highest they've really tested that there's photosynthetic response is like 738 um somewhere in there but we say like up to 750 is just sort of like an arbitrary cutoff for leds at least um there aren't leds that are sort of now, doc, they're almost all quick, 730s i got a quick question the uh you said photosynthetic response yeah is that what Bugs B tested with the UV or did he also text for THC? They're testing for the chemical. They're testing for the chemical analysis of the plant at the end. They're All trying right, to see, did, did THC okay. rise? Did CBD rise? And they All measure right. it and they see only negative results across the board on that. It's like when you look into the actual data, like I have, I've looked into hundreds of studies. I've tried to bring them up, but they're so negative and like it's so one-sided. It's uninteresting. They're short, brief to the point. It's like we tried it. It didn't work. We tried it this way. We tried it that way. We tried it 10 different ways and to Sunday it didn't work. But then when you go like Doc is saying into these far reds, you start to see things like the Emerson effect or the ability to run like a 13 or 14 hour day cycle on plants that would maybe otherwise only flower under 1212. A lot of stuff does only flower under 1212. Like we looked at in the study last week, but if you run, uh, you know, 15 or 30 minutes after and before is the philosophy that I've seen uh, represented with the far reds, it essentially helps the plant wake up a little bit quicker and go to sleep a little bit quicker. Not to anthropomorphize too much, but it allows you to give that extra hour of light per day. Yeah. And like, yeah. I And it's like, it's literally, there's a cryptochromes and phytochromes. It is accessing different parts of how the plant functions. So it's not just like hippie voodoo. Like this is science that people right. have figured out much smarter than myself. I've read about it. It's interesting. You should, you know, you can further your education by looking into the Emerson effect and, and 730 nanometer and the effects of far red on plants. And it's pretty well understood. It's very interesting. But uh, I think yeah. it's definitely a more interesting part of the conversation. How it specifically, to get right at Tao's question, how it specifically affects how far red specifically affects flowering cannabis plants and flower development, you know, 
Bugsby's research shows that it increases sort of overall yield. So it increases that photosynthetic response, but it just the same that any other light would do. Uh, I'm willing to say like we need to, to sort of look deeper at that and see how it affects like floral morphology um, to see how it affects specific ratios of cannabinoids with different strains. But um, because it seems like it still strikes me that there's a, a plausible sort of pathways for those those effects to be realized, especially with what far red light does that we know it does to vegetating cannabis plants and to vegetating plants in general and what it does to other flowering plants. Um, so I do think that there's still some research that needs to be done there. It's far more promising end of the spectrum than the short wavelength UV. That's my main point. And yeah, I, I have to agree with that because, um, you know, like that, and that's the thing, like it helps to remember that like cannabis isn't like it's by itself there, like it evolved from earlier plants and, and it inherited a ton of dynamics and how its physiology works from that. And the, those of parts of those, at least most of those have been conserved. And so like Dr. Coco said, like the, the light, like plants use IR to tell them a few things or they have reactions that essentially let them react in a way that's adaptive, which is basically, and we've talked about it before, but that's overshading. is a big one. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's what, that's, that, that's, what the that's that linky. Yeah, exactly. That's that linkiness. Right. So, so and that's why you don't want to give too much of the 730 exactly. red because then it thinks it's in the shade and then it tries to stretch and stretch and grows super ultra lanky. And like the only time I've to shout out Leo stone, uh, he said he uses that for some of his males that are super dense uh, because when you have too dense of a male, the pollen sacs won't open up properly. Sometimes you'll get mold and have other issues, but he would use a little bit higher ratio far red to make those males stretch out and have uh, more spread out bud clusters. So he's able to breed with stuff that he otherwise wouldn't be able to breed with indoor under artificial lighting. So like Doc mentioned earlier, the morphology of the flower, not even just for the females, but for the males in that case it was important for that breeder to, he got that information, implemented it and said, oh, wow, now I can use this male that was getting mold or, or not opening up its clusters enough for me to make enough seed. So it's really fascinating that you can do that. And that is why it's important to be wary of that ratio. You want a lot more of the regular par light than you want far red. Far red should just be sort of like a icing on the cake type thing. It's a additional thing, not the the main meal for your plant. Right. And that's why somebody said a while ago, I can't remember, said like red versus far red, like red is different, like 660 nanometer light or anything in the middle 600s. I always say that the LED diode nanometers that we target, but like those 660s, you can give a whole hell of a lot of a 660 nanometer light that's in par um, that reacts on sort of the, the lower end side with the 730 light and the Emerson effect. Um, so it's considered sort of the shorter wavelength light in that, um, it, it does lead to stem elongation, cell elongation during vegetative growth, but it, they, they work very differently above and below. I think it's like 695 nanometers, um, the light, how it affects photosynthesis, whether it works sort of in combination with shorter wavelength light or whether it works on its own. Um, above 695 nanometers, the light is not photosynthetic like on its own. It's only photosynthetic in combination and in minority combination to par light, shorter wavelength light. Um, and so th that I think speaks to Jack's point about you don't want it to be sort of 
too much of that, but you can give all the 660 nanometer light that you want. Yeah, like the blur poles back in the day, I think it was 450 or 440 and 660s. It was literally just yeah. that. You were getting blue and red. And those are the two most efficient. I mean, this all gets found in the semiconductor materials they, they use. They use specific combinations of P and N type materials. And when you pass a current through them, it creates a specific nanometer of, of photon to come off. And so they have combinations that create 450 nanometer light. And it's a very efficient combination of semiconductor materials. So passing light through those 450s, they have another combination of two different materials that creates the 660 nanometer light. And passing, you know, a current through those materials creates really efficient 660 nanometer light. I have another set that makes the 730 nanometer lights or whatever. Um, and most, you know, diodes are using those exact same semiconductor materials and generating the exact same kind of wavelengths of light. And then sometimes even just using coding to change the spectrum. Yeah, that's, that's how the full through. spectrum diodes, right? They use a, a phosphor in the coding to make those 450s, which the semiconductor is blue in the, the full spectrum diodes, they use phosphor to make it appear full spectrum. Yeah, it looks white for the user. And so they can see what their plants look like, find def deficiencies and things like that a lot easier than uh, going back to the purple, which some people may have never grown with at the, this point. It was hard to actually see. It gave people headaches. It was uh, difficult to diagnose plant health things without pulling the plants out or looking at it under a different light. But I want to kind of go lightning round because I do want to open up the panel. It might not be the whole second hour, but I want to get through all the questions that we've got queued up. So Spartan Grown got one. We don't have the actual name of the person, but it just says darker, uh, that was getting yellow darker. veins in flower. What is this issue? His name was darker. That was his name. Oh, oh, cool. So <laughs> getting yellow veins in flower. So that, that makes sense. All right. So darker asks getting yellow veins in flower. What? They wrote what this issue. I'm guessing what is this issue. Um, I mean, it could be a lot thing. of things. Yeah, it depends. The uh, it depends a lot. Answer. Well, chlorosis, you know. Well, like, like, yeah. I mean, that could be nutrients. You know, deficiency. That could be, you know, some organism that's wrecking your plant's ability to, like, if you're getting enough nutrients, but then they're not getting use or they're getting mobilized or something ones are you know it could be all kinds of things yeah it could be yeah this so situational because for for sure it could be that you have all the nutrients you need in the media but it, you have a an off ph so your plant can't uptake that said nutrient or it could be you have an excess of one nutrient that is blocking the uptake of said nutrient that you have deficiency of in your plant so Overwatered, underwatered. Yeah, the first thing also... you do is just start going through all the list of things and checking off. Is this a possibility? Is that a possibility? So that would be like overwatering, underwatering. Um, yeah, it could be a ton of things. Is your EC too high <laughs> or too low? Is your pH too high or too low? Like there's a, a big checklist that oftentimes I'll, if I get a DM from a grower, here's my plant. What's wrong with it? How do I fix it? I'll start asking like, is it cocoa or is it soil? Uh, what's your pH? What's your nutrient line that you're using? Like how strong of a feed is it? Because if they're like, I'm feeding 2.5 EC, I'm like, all right, we're going to have to dial that way back. That's way too much. If it's 1.5 in, that's fine. But if it's, you know, 2.7 coming out, then you've got issues. It's like, okay, something's happening. It's maybe drying out too long, getting excess nutrient buildup. Um, that's almost always what I see. Like I'd say nine out of 10 growers I come across are having the issue of they've 
you know, put the proper or close to proper nutrient in, but maybe it dries out or maybe the plant takes the water up quicker uh, than the nutrient. And then they're left with a really salty media and they don't know it because they're not measuring their runoff EC. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a, uh, a conundrum when you've only got that little bit of information. There's like, we kind of all just mentioned probably five or 10 different things that could be causing. Yeah. Well, a good place issue. to start. I always attack it with is, is what's changed recently. What have you done differently in this run that you didn't do last run? And that's usually the good place to start. I added this new PK so booster, bro. That. I told it was going to double my yields and my buds are going to smell like dank. I would say you paid three hundred dollars and now you have zero plants. Or it totally oh. worked. Oh, or that, yeah, that's true. It's a gamble. Don't no, uh, you know, don't buy don't buy the magic <laughs> beans, okay? No. Do what she says. Just go buy the milk and the eggs. And um, yeah, don't buy the magic beans. We do have another well, question. Well, lightning round, yeah. Are you saying that because it? of the jet green stock? Is that why you're referencing that, <laughs> Matthew? <laughs> that might I'm have been not familiar game. with. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Abolished says, "So I got one for the panel. If nitrates cause cancer, why is it okay to use feeding methods that push them in a plant that is used to fight cancer?" That's just a high thought at Cheap Home Grow. Great question. What? Good question. I think it's very different. Um, I, I don't. I don't know if those are like the same thing. I'll say this: there yeah. is a requirement <laughs> for small amounts of things that are poisonous in high amounts. So, like hey, we need good arsenic and other things in our soils. Otherwise, the you know, in very trace amounts. I'm not saying we want to like be an arsenic-rich soil, but you need a tiny amount. And it, not, not that it's a maybe it is a need. I don't know, but it, it's there. So, and it doesn't well, necessarily ruin everything. Yeah, that's kind of like saying plants require nitrates in order to to grow and photosynthesize. It's just my sort of dog eats dog food. Why don't I eat dog food? It's a little <laughs> different in my plants use it differently. You know what I'm saying, right? I, I just saw a Cornell Sips thing, I think, about hemp, and they gave just nitrate and then just nitrite and then yeah. like a mix of both. And I think yeah. it could live off of one of them, but not off of the other one. And it works well with a mix. But cannabis prefers. I can't remember if it was nitrate or nitrite. Damn, I'm blanking. I I literally went over that same uh, paper and post about it on Instagram, and I also forget the the, the what what this, the the uh, the results were. But I want to say it was nitrates. I want to say it was nitrates. Yeah, I was like, if that's the case, then I guess you don't really even need to use the other one because they were able to get away without using the other one. But I'm curious what Doc it's, would have to say about that one. Yeah. Wait, what are we talking about now? I was just nitrates. Well, like, let me ask you. Let me put you this way. Like, let me ask this question. Like, I mean, like the reason why it works better is because plants have like plants have to go through an extra step to turn other nutritious sources into right. the thing that they need to use as their like, you know, as their as their metabolites that we that they need to, that they need to use for metabolization. So you can't. So like, it might feel like it's more craft or whatever other adjective you want to use, like, oh, the plant did more work or something, or it's more natural. But eventually, the pro those become that thing. Those become that. That's why it takes it up so much right. easily, right? Yeah. There are different forms of the plant, and some of them require the plant to, to sort of work for it, absolutely. But 
I'm still not entirely plugged into what you guys are, are talking about. Oh, first. sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll go with my answer real quick for, for abolish. I would say that the nitrates are used by the plant to make nitrates. other things like amino, like amino acids and other things. So they're kind of transformed into something else and used to make good. So that, so it's like a kind of example of a bad being changed into a good. Different than like nitrate that's injected into a meat to keep it from, you know, losing its color on the store shelf that you're consuming yeah. directly nitrate. Google but... nitrogen cycle guys, and just sort of see that how it moves from atmospheric nitrogen, which is sort of the most common element in the atmosphere. So like, you know, if we're going to use this sort of scare tactics, like if nitrates cause cancer, what about all this nitrogen in the air everywhere? Right. Like, oh, no. Yeah. It's more so prominent than oxygen. Forms. And so compressed air is called nitrogen. Yeah. And then yeah. how it's fixed in the soil, um, how the, the forms that the plant takes off, what happens to it. Um, God, I went into this to, to prep for one of the little lectures I do on, on the Ask Dr. Coco show, but um, I can't remember all the different phases that nitrogen passes through during that cycle. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what we're dealing with. Very well answered, I think. And um, Claude asked, can we breed an auto trim plant that's just <laughs> devoid of leaves by harvest? Well, there's a will, there's a way. I I've mean, seen more, I've seen stranger crop like cultivars produced and, and things where like you got some really unique, you know, uh, 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 physiological effects at the very end where you don't have to do as much shucking or you don't have to do as much you know threshing or whatever right so it's kind cookies of is pretty damn idea. close the forum cut oh, yeah? cookie it's basically just like tiny little golf ball nugs and then like the leaves there's usually like you know two like a uh, water leaves on each side you pop those off and you basically just leave the rest of the bud because it's such a tight little golf ball like the <laughs> over in the bag over time those little uh, sugar leaves are going to crunch off and they're even smokable because it's such a frosty plant but that's one of the closer ones. I would say um, our buddy Dog Doctor had a close one, I think, or maybe he said it was a misery to trim. I can't remember. The Super Freak he had recently, the leaves were like either so little, maybe they just came off easily. Or uh, I can't remember if he said it was an easy one to trim or hard one to trim. We were talking about whether that was going to be easy or hard. Then he said it. And now I'm like, I'm so scattered. That happens sometimes when they like could be one thing or the other. And then it even gets resolved and you can't remember how it got resolved. You just The same exact thing with that nitrate, nitrite thing. Like I, yeah. I watched and I read the paper and I looked at it and I like, so this is why you write things down. Spartan Grown's good at that. I know he's <laughs> got all this stuff like behind the camera or used to at least he'd, he'd pull stuff out like a note and be like, check this out. You know, ladybugs live best at. 38 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever, you know, and he just had all these little uh, things handy. So I appreciate that. So I, I'll throw this out there. I think we should do like a, a science review type article like that, that gets more into sort of some basic plant science that is valid for the way that we grow our plants, that is sort of foundational. Um, you know, I, I'll, I could help look for some of those types of things, but I'd I be 100% supporting. Get really esoteric with some of the articles, which is also fun. But like, I bet the, the audience would enjoy just getting into like the nitrogen cycle and, you know, like the idea. Photosynthesis. And Rust re hit that stuff a lot late, like uh, later in life. And he was like blown away. He had all these like printed out packets and laminated everything. And, and I think that was the foundation of a lot of his understanding of the later stuff. So it is important. And one of our most listened to episodes is called Back to Basics. And people yeah. go back and listen to those episodes and, and think like, okay, it might seem basic, but then you learn more from 
people that have been doing it for years and years and all the little nuance that comes within even just discussing the basics and uh, yeah. the idiosyncrasies of each one of our ways of going about doing it can highlight lots of little things that are maybe hard to write on paper or read in a, a journal article. But like when we start all talking about it, you can tease out these little specific things that are uh, otherwise difficult to just find in a guide somewhere. Yeah. And we can start with that nitrate. Uh, uh, we can start with that nitrogen paper for That'd sure. Good for yeah. sure. And then another nitrogen cycle as well. Know if he was here. Yeah. I bet yeah. you're right. I bet I can look it up in five minutes because I have the smartest, most powerful resource of human intelligence imaginable. And I can just look it up for you guys. Why don't I just do that? The internet. Uh, I've been messing with Bard. I know that chat GPT or whatever is uh, like you have to pay for it, but Bard is free from Google. It's the AI. You basically ask like, tell me everything about the nitrogen cycle. And then it'll give you, I actually helped my brother out. He's a teacher. And I was like, Hey, uh, say, write me a lesson plan for, you know, the Mahi Mahi Rebellion or whatever and uh, for U.S. history or uh, world history. And it just writes out a full lesson line in seconds. And it's like very high quality. And it, sure, you can edit or revise it and add to it, but it's, it's not going to replace everything. I just think it's a, a convenient little thing. But Gives I think for this kind of stuff. You know, know it's high quality, though, but it, it's very authoritative, whether it's correct or not. It's very dangerous. Yeah, to right. fact check that is enough. It says beta, at least. Paper, right? Yeah. I, be afraid of I don't trust I don't it 100%. Trust yeah, but if you're using uh, it for something that you're very knowledgeable in. You'll get See, I'll, I'll do it with things that I know Error. really well. I'll right. ask it about stuff that I know, errors. and then it will give you a pretty good answer for a lot of stuff. And then other stuff, it is not so accurate. So I think that it's going to get just better. Just think about what you would get if you mined, randomly mined the internet for wisdom about how to grow cannabis, right? Are you going to get the right, good, best info about how to grow cannabis? I mean, you're going to get a bunch of crap is what you're going to get. So like garbage in garbage out i'm sorry like we, we still need human filters it's just a on tool you just gotta learn how to use it yeah it's man. more for it's like i want to go to dinner somewhere in uh sure. know, name a city and then it'll give you like six options and instead of like googling like food and it gives you the ones that people paid to be at the top it'll give you the highest rated ones and like a little blurb about each thing there, there's a few different ways to use it but uh we do have some more questions that i want to make sure that we it's get a to. lot of numbers for june 1st that's that's what we need to It'll say like, sorry, I'm just a, you know, conversational AI. I can't tell you the future and things like that. Also, I just after every say, answer, it gives you a Google option where you can Google everything in it and fact check it if you like. That is kind of cool. I just want to bring up right before you go that this is, that if you haven't heard this before. This is like Noel's law of media accuracy, which is that idea that like, you know, everything in your, in your newspaper is right, except for that story where it's like, oh, I actually know about this. Oh, and they got it wrong. That's you know, exactly you, what I was thinking you, of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, hey. like you, you trust everything else for whatever reason, but then when it's you get to the thing that you long. know really well, you're like, this is all bullshit. And then you realize, wait, maybe the whole entire newspaper. Maybe is there was more to that. Yeah. Or at least some of it. Anywho, I keep derailing yeah. this. No, that's Our fine. I think that's a very pertinent point for this type of discussion. Lie. But Archie B. Grown says, Cheap Home Grow, what is the best way to transition a clone uh, to outside? And I think Spartan's done this many times. I'll pass it to you first. And then uh, maybe Tal can follow up. Man, I don't know. Because every time the way I do it, everybody tells me is the wrong way. Because I just take a clone and I put it outside. That's what I do. I mean, oh, so I, you, you think I, that I like, like other them, people. I don't hard them off. People think you should hard them off. I just put them in. I, I put them in. I, the one thing I do that's different than a lot of people is I like to put them in fabric pots and then sink those fabric pots halfway in the ground. So it's like mini raised beds. 
that can help. I think with airflow and uh, getting even temperature control and things like stability, where when you're on top, if it, in Michigan it gets cold or whatever breeze and other things, more impacted by the elements where it's got some of that uh, yeah. protection from. I would say grow teen plants. So if you struggle with, you feel like you, they, they struggle and they have a hard time, grow like a teen plant, a plant that's, you know, maybe a foot tall already, foot tall or something instead of just a little, a little tiny clone. And uh, maybe that will, you know, give you a more established root base and uh, help you make that transition easier if it's something that it's a struggle for you. I advocate that for even like vegetable crops, like my family in Ohio that grow plants, like if they can get a plant started in the springtime where it's still not quite nice enough out there for them to be growing, but indoor, they can start a plant, get it to a foot or two tall so that by the time the weather is good, they put it out there and it's already alive and, and started versus just like starting a seed as soon as the weather is good enough. So um, that can definitely have some good results for sure. Tao, do you have any maybe uh, tips, tricks, or advice? I think I see Noah the Grow actually unmuted there. Noah, do you have any thoughts on putting clones outside? No, uh, I was just going to say about what you're saying is just a general gardening tip. Like the last couple of years, me and my wife have gotten a little two by four grow tent. We have a four by four too, but you know we put a little uh, light in there and we start all of our vegetable starts. So I could imagine that it would be good growing outside um, a lot of my buddies that do grow outside they always start their plants to be at least 13 14 inches tall to give them kind of a head start but i and real quick indoor growing tip for anybody who has access to another grower go into your buddy's grow room and watch them work in there you'd be surprised how many times you can pick up little tips i've learned so many stuff from other growers that were just decent growers but just watching them do it different perspectives always help whether it's indoor or outdoor and then take a shower and burn your clothes before you go back into your grow room. Or you can watch like yeah, that's the of price cribs, of knowledge. Can of cribs or these other uh, you know networks that go around, and and you can see commercial grows. Some of them, the old school ones, go to home grows. Some of them go to like uh, shout out to Subcool, the weed nerd. He went to like uh, you know a bunch of different growers all throughout California and Oregon. Uh, Jorge Cervantes, I know we talked about him a little bit last week as well. He showed off some of the first 10 pound plants that I saw. And I was like, holy shit, like <laughs> cannabis is really this fucking amazing plant. And these guys in Oregon and California know what the fuck they're doing with it because that is impressive. Like I was happy to get a six foot tall plant but like, and like get taller than me and like, you know, have a couple pounds and be really happy with it. But then you see these dudes out there with like thousand uh, gallon pots and shit like that. And these I 10 foot, the strains 10, too, though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I got 10 foot tall, 10 foot wide. Tricks, so uh i put sometimes i would put my like if it's later and the sun's really uh bright i put my clones into a tub and i put a white sheet over it and keep the white sheet wet because it would be like it's usually too hot and to uh the sunlight too bright for a couple of days then if i bring them i would bring them out into my locations i'd leave them in in the uh woods like where the sun is only spotty really spotty uh i would bring them like two days before the weatherman says it's supposed to rain I let them hang out there for two days. I go back right before it rains. I put them in the ground and then they'll get a rain in and maybe overcast day. That's what you want. Like transplanting them on overcast day. If you're not going to be around them. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I uh, have done in the past. But if you start seed outside, they'll be fine underneath the sunlight. So we'll figure it yeah. out. Just like you can so, start a seed under 12, 12 yeah. and it's not flowering until like five, six nodes and, you know, several weeks, maybe a month later. If that, so 
good tips. Anybody else have any thoughts on uh, prepping clones to go outside, Matthew, or anybody else before we keep Depends on going? Depends on climate, I would say. I mean, if you live in a, in a really reasonable climate, then you need to do a lot less than if you live in some place where it gets really cold at night. Um, it's getting cold at night in the spring, I think, is sort of the biggest risk to, to young plants that are moved outside. So um, just be aware of your climate, harden them off a little bit more if, if it's going to still get too cold or still bring them in at night if you can. Um, be careful of those uh, second winters if you're in Ohio or Michigan or Canada. I know several years I was like, oh, it's finally over. It's, it's spring is here. And then it'd be warm for like a month or a few weeks. And then boom, you get hit with another fucking snow. So uh, that's an important thing to consider for sure. Good. Great point there, Doc. Matthew, any IPM uh, points maybe on this one before we move forward? We, we covered a lot of cool things, um, you know, kind of like some of the Spartans often talked about is like, uh, and other people here, it's like, just make sure that you have like a smart, like going forward, have like a, a bit of a barrier if you can, something that's a mitigating force. Don't just assume everything is fine. Um, you know, especially if you got plants from other people, especially if you have, you know, even, even as you're growing, you might not notice something has like gotten in. And then like when you start them similar location, maybe they're away from your eyesight or, you know, you're not as uh, you know, looking as uh, in depth, or even if you did, like some of these pests are very small. Some of them are very microscopic, right? Like fungi and stuff. So um, I just think that's always good to just consider it. Like uh, you have these like transition breaks you know, between like propagation and then putting them out and, or however that is for your setup, you know, in that, in that break between propagation and cultivation, you hit them with either some wettable sulfur or, or something else and take a look at them before you really start them off. And I think that'll just give them a fighting fit chance, kind of like the hardening comment, right? It's a similar sort of thing, just uh, in a different purview. Sulfur is a great little, uh, protection for a lot of things i would say that's a, a great general one for so so much and, and so many places and it's legal almost uh many 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 places so happy that that's a good suggestion that works so well for so many kate armstrong longtime listener shout out to you kate armstrong been uh listening for a long time offering many great questions as well as all the other great questions asked this evening it says cheap home grow is it possible to switch light cycle from 6 a.m on to 6 p.m off to 6 p.m. off, 6 a.m. They were off, off both times, but I'm assuming just a flip, flip flop them uh, off and then on halfway through flowering or just leave it till I'm done flowering this grow. Just wondering. And I'll pass that to Doc as our resident light guy. There's a couple of ways you can try to accomplish this. There's sort of like the risky way to do it quickly. And there's the gradual way that would take like long, like over a week to accomplish that change. Um, anytime you want to change the light cycle on flowering plants, you want to do it by increasing the darkness, not or conversely decreasing the light if you're going to sort of play with that side, but not by decreasing the darkness. So um, I think the fastest, safest way to do it is not very safe, and it's definitely a stress on the plant would be to go 24 off um, and and then repeat that, you know, bring it back on 12 hours, 12 hours. The, the safer way takes a lot longer and you're just going to walk them into that new time. 
um, by, you know, adding time to the lights off, taking the, the, the lights on time back on um, up behind it. So you can move it like two hours a day. Uh, it's going to take you like a week to, to do a 12 hour switch. Um, I, I'd want to have a pretty compelling reason to want to do this either way, halfway through flowering. But what do you guys think about that? I've done it. And I did it. Like you said, I did 24 hour darkness, just flipped it and it worked fine. That's what I would do too. And have done. I liked what, uh, I mean, very much the topic that we had last week where we talked about learning that, uh, you know, being, it's actually very harsh and the plant is, uh, it doesn't really have control over its reaction to light stimulus. So if you just, if you just flip like people typically do, um, that actually is kind of a extremely stressful event, but if you kind of do it gradually, I feel like, yeah, that's probably smarter. Yeah, I mean, I see it both ways, Matthew. I think I think that it's a hell of a lot faster to do it the other way. Um, but that 24-hour darkness is definitely going to be stressful to the plant. And, oh, and yeah. that's more what I'm worried about even than abruptly sort of standing the, the day-night cycle on its head is just that doubling of the dark period right in the middle of the the. the the thing um politics the other thing which is the other way of doing it keeps it kind of instable for longer and part of me as a grower just wants to kind of get it over with if i've got to do something like that and like hope the plant survives but yeah i, I kind of i feel that logic too because it's like especially if it's like like getting along a ways you feel like it's probably hardy enough that like it's not just gonna like die on you so you could probably do something remedial if you really needed to. I kind of feel that. And I really believe that plants can deal with one stressor. Um, so doing that once, leaving the lights off for 24 hours is like one, it's a big stressor, but it's like one thing that it had to, to deal with. It's not kind of this like ongoing insecurity about when the light cycle is that, you know, if you keep kind of like walking. Yeah. It. And like yeah, Matthew has yeah. taught us, it's a scotoperiod plant, so you don't you want it to be keep that long dark cycle. And it's like a super overcast day. Maybe it was that incredible thunderstorm where it made it feel like it was night in the middle of two a.m. or two p.m. But yeah, that's what I do. I would just flip it with a twenty-four hour dark cycle and then go from there. This is that also, asteroid response. <laughs> there's also other things that can happen. So in the last 11, 12 years, I've been growing. I've had this happen twice. Twice the power went out completely out for the night. And actually, this last year it happened. Nothing I could do about it. And then another time, see, about three, four years ago, I had a Titan uh, controller that I'd had since I, you know, moved into my house 2014. It almost burned my whole house down, and it popped. And it it popped right when the lights came on, like, and so the lights were completely out for the 24 hour period. Cause that's what it took, you know, but the next, you know, my lights come on at night. So there's other ways that this could, you're going to run into this. And I didn't notice any difference really. And they were a both, you know, three different times. Once it was like week two from 12, 12 flip. Once it was like week four, once it was like week five or six. So they can survive just like doc said one time, it probably stressed them out a little bit, but they'll be all right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, we definitely, next. Well addressed that one. And then I think there's really, well, there's one more in chat that I didn't copy over. Oh, Russ, uh, Matthew got it. Cool. This one, um, 
for Doc is a specific to Doc, so it'll be a quick answer, I'm sure. Uh, Andrew Dollins says, Etchy Pone Grow, Doctor, when are you planning on harvesting your girls on the grow cam? And I'm going to go ahead and spotlight those, and you can tell us uh, what they are and when you think they're coming down. Uh, you know, I was thinking maybe this morning, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, I went in and was sharing some pictures yesterday in the chat room and Cocoa for Cannabis, and some growers are talking me down from harvesting because some of the the trichome pictures I posted still had like clear trichomes, but I don't know. We're in the 10th week here. We passed the end of week nine from Flip, I think was Thursday. Um, so we're, we're moving towards, you know, 10 weeks in flower. Um, I'm growing four different strains and six different plants there, but I'm pretty much going to harvest the ball on the same day, whatever day that's going to be at this point. Um, I don't know, you know, they all still got over the, the total plant view. I would say looks like they're all ready to harvest. You get up closer to um, um, most of the buds, like you can see down in the bottom right corner there, like just covered in white pistols. Um, but I think they probably always will be. There's some strains that just sort of stay covered in white pistols. Um, and looking in sort of deeper with the lens, yeah, there's still some clear trichomes, mostly cloudy, but still some clear trichomes. So I don't know, this week, Maybe Tuesday, I'm thinking now, um, probably Tuesday. I got this other, grow. I got the SAFC grow, the, the autos that I'm trying to grow to be like big plants. And I want to set up my four by four. So I'm juggling all these things at the same time. But I want to give these girls enough time to to do their thing. I would definitely uh, just from the white pistols probably go another week or maybe drop down to like 11, 13 or something like that. To, I, I found that helps with a couple of the ones that continue to throw the white pistols for me. If I didn't start at 11, 13 to uh, drop down that one. You know, hour, I have but... a lot of strains that I think will just keep throwing white pistols. I mean, and and I, I harvest them eventually. And so, I mean, I remember one of them, I ended up calling it the best plant because I like loved the, the bud from it so much. And it was at harvest really covered in white pistols, but it did have more kind of mature looking trichomes. So I don't know. It, yeah, I agree. But I would trust the trichomes too, but if there's still some glassiness, I agree that uh, white pistols at harvest can be fine. Actually, one of my best harvests as well. One of the plants with white pistols, it was a platinum Yeti F3 um everything else in the room was like completely finished but that one still had white pistols and i was like i'm just because of the management of the grow i took everything down at the same time at that certain point in time yeah. and um so that one came down with the rest of the crop and it ended up being killer smoke so sometimes the uh looks can be a little bit deceiving especially from like a little bird's eye view like this from a, a camera that's mounted in the grow room if you're sitting there you have a better look at them in person with a scope and uh you know from you know you could squat down and look at them from different angles things like that so you have a much yeah. better idea of the density and maturity of the buds you can squeeze the buds smell the buds and you know exactly like you shared with us they're how long they are in the flower it's not like they're like week six or something you know they've uh had plenty of time yeah, to no, mature and pack on time to, to get ready and i think they're nine weeks like all of them but like we've passed the nine week time so you know, it's soon. I did pop them up pretty close to and, and a couple of them like on flip day. So that seemed to slow down the, the transition into flowering. 
Um, but I've been hitting them with a lot of light, like the whole rest of the time and trying to grow, you know, quickly, I suppose. So I think they'll be done this week. How are they smelling? Do you have any favorites? They're smelling really good. Um, no, I guess I don't really have any favorites. I, I like the the Alaska. There's two Alaska Thunderfuck in the middle um, that were really pungent, like really pungent. And I like that just because I like things that are like really pungent. You know what I mean? Like really kind of strong. Um, like probably my favorite smell overall would be the ones that are um, in the far left. There's two mimosa back there um, that. I'm digging sort of the terpene profile from. Is it giving you that citrusy like effervescence? Yeah, it's a it's sort of a, a clean kind of smell. It's a it's like a happy. It just kind of like makes me happy smelling that. The the Alaska Thunderfuck is more kind of like oh wow that's kind of like heady. Um, and I think Spartan taught me the trick for this, so I'll go ahead and, and pass this forward. It's like rub the stems. Or was that you, Jack? Who was the rub the stems? That's Spartan. I mean, yeah. many, many people have suggested that. And I'm rubbing the stems on my Spartan growing uh, Project V. And they're only in veg, but they're already reeking like mango and just dank. So I'm like, nice. he was saying that they're terpless. I'm like, holy shit, dude. These things are terpy yeah. as hell. And they're just oh, the one I the grew one was terpless. I'm getting people that are saying candied lemons and mangoes. And then the, 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 the other side is baby poop. Yeah, so but mine's yeah, like mango sure. Jack baby off shit. The stems. Jack off the stems and you get you get the smells. Because what you're doing is you're using friction to melt yeah. the the you know the resonance on the, on the stems that you don't smoke anyway. And I, I was just bending the plant over to train it, like a little LST, and I was like, oh my god, why does it smell so strong already? Like I smell my fingers, I was like, this smells like I want to smoke this bud, but like it's just in veg still. I'm like, damn, this is gonna be some I'm really happy with the ones I picked already. So that's exciting. Awesome. That's good news. That's good to hear, Jack. Yeah. I still, I mean, when I'm growing four different cultivars like this, I can only do two at a time, right? Because I only have like two hands. And yeah, I mean, you use your your thumb and index fingers on one and then, okay, which other one am I going to smell over here? Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm happy. I'm excited for this harvest because I'm excited to try like all of those plants. Matthew, I've got one from Rosinante who says, what is the most common cause of bud rot for home groves? Uh, there were some really good answers to this in the chat that I saw. Um, you know, it definitely depends on like how you want to look at it. Um, but generally speaking, actually a really great research report by uh, Mahmood and also Zamir Punja uh, came out very recently about botrytis and cannabis. And um, I'll put the link in the chat for everyone. But I would say that some of the big correlations are things that are true in all kinds of other crops. So they're not really specific to cannabis. Uh, one of them is like plant density, you know, plant load, like, you know, one plant per square meter versus two pl plants per square meter, you know, 10% increase in bud rot. Yeah, they found in their experimentation. We do um, a plant per square foot, Matthew, like a plant per square meter or two plants per square meter. That's still really low density. Yeah, it is. Let me check to see. 
if I'm just saying square meter because that's what my default metric is in my head. It may be. I mean, that's just how some yeah. of the studies are set up and they grow big plants. It might have been plants per <laughs> square meter, like multiple plants. Like there was a different density in how many plants per square meter. Right. Ten plants per square yeah, meter. Yeah. Yeah. It was two plants yeah. per square meter, one plant per square meter, and the two different plants. And yeah, only a 10% increase, but still relevant. Uh, well, you know, we, we literally do more like nine plants per square meter, though. So I, I imagine if there's a difference between one and two, then getting up in, in density even higher would, would continue to show it. I mean, I agree with you. Yeah, I think absolutely. that's a management like, practice thing. If you grow like a giant ass sativa and just let it grow naturally and bushy <laughs> and like yeah. you have like a massive ass tree versus <laughs> yeah. like when you're cultivating like most uh, indoor people do where they basically strip the plants down and pack a bunch of plants into a much smaller area they can get away it's a management practice thing for sure like when i saw this question my thought was well botrytis yeah it's got to be in the environment but it also has to have the conditions the proper conditions for it to basically thrive and that, that to me is usually the moisture is too high the buds are too dense and you need to do a little bit of uh maybe maybe top of the plant more maybe get better airflow or maybe have better filtration of the air if you're indoor like you can purify the air try and yeah. limit spores and things like that as much as you can carbon filters uh or uv like there's a thing called the air sniper it runs all the air through a little uv thing it's not unique there's a bunch of other different ones out there that do that but yeah i have a particular kind of expertise here if you spotlight my grow for a second too i'll show you the bud rot that i just had to cut out um, so speaking of somebody that just got, but it's right in the middle of the frame, you see there's a, it, it's grown over now because I cut this out about I don't know, almost two weeks ago now, I think. Um, but right in the middle, there's a, a goal without a top. You can see sort of the is coming off of it, yeah. but it doesn't have a top of it. Um, and my issue, I mean, yeah, plant count density is pretty high, I, you know, I have six plants in less than a square meter, um, but it's, it was just the relative humidity. It just got too humid. I had good air movement. Um, the canopy looks thick because you're just sort of looking straight down on it from the top, but it's actually not. I mean, I've trimmed up the bottoms of these girls a lot. Um, so, you know, to limit the, the humidity, but I was dealing with, you know, really humid weather um and i had the least san diego my solution to it yet. <laughs> the least san diego san diego we've ever had i mean it rained nonstop, and it's still yeah. kind of going from the beginning of the year till now we've never experienced it, not never but i mean I in my time here about this change in climate that we've experienced yeah. like, so now i'm running my mini split on 24 hours on dry mode which makes it like chilly as hell in here. And I've got the, the cheap home grow reheat system set up with a, a <laughs> space heater going over by the, the two grow tents that I've got. So like the mini splits trying to just take all the, and it, it's working like now in the tent, I, I'm looking under my computer. I got my little climate saying it's 54% relative humidity in my tent. 78.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Now my bigger challenge is keeping temperatures up, um, but I can at least get my humidity down. Uh, like a week and a half ago before I did my whole cheap home grow reheat system, I was running mid seventies in the, the flower tent there and got um, bud rot. So I just wanted to put out there running really high humidity, 
during yeah. growing big flowers is a pretty good way to get both. You're asking for it at that point. I hate to say it. it. That's the recipe. That's the only times I've ever seen it is like my buds were too fat. Uh, pat on my own back. Like I did a good job there, but then it's like, oh, yeah, shit, I, I could have topped them a couple more times. And instead of having like 16 tops, if I had 32 on that same plant, then none of them would have had bud rot. And instead of every single one being, you know, a five or seven gram cola, they would have been a three or four gram cola or something, but you still end up with about the same amount and you don't have any bud rot in, in that case. It is more management uh, to go through doing that extra topping on all the different things, but you can do it. I've seen some really quick people that like, once you get the process down, you can kind of just like some people do it with their hand. They'll just pick them. Uh, if you have snips, you can go through and nice clean pair of scissors, top them around. And it, it's just like, it depends on how many plants you have. Obviously if you have a 10,000 plant grow, you've got a lot more to manage than somebody like me, who's just narrowing it down to two every time from like a 15 plant start. But yeah, it's a, uh, something that's worth going into and abolish has a, another question really quick that I think we could get into it. I, th I think they were probably not going to open up the panel at this point because we've only got like 20 minutes left before uh, we close it down. But Abolish says- I had some things to say about Botrytis just as- Oh a, yeah, no, we'll, we'll yeah, definitely yeah. let you finish up then. Yeah, just a few, there's a couple of cool things from the paper. Um, and then one thing that might be a topic of conversation after this question. So one, one thing they tested, which is not the, I mean, this is a cause perhaps, but there's different strains. So they looked at- um, for example, they looked at a strawberry strain of, of botrytis, a milkweed isolate, a strawberry isolate, and a, a one that they, they isolated from another cannabis plant, which ostensibly is from some other plant. And they had different infection, different kinds of virulence uh, efficacy. So some of them, they grew really well. Some of them on the same kind of plant and everything uh, didn't, didn't grow as well. So that was interesting. Um, they didn't find any relationship between terpenes or anything like that. So... Maybe we'll find more in the future, but specifically terpenes, maybe other volatiles perhaps, but um, it seems like it doesn't do a whole lot for botrytis. And that kind of grocks with how I understand the infection to work. Um, and they also said like what you guys already said, which was that uh, yeah, high humidity and also uh, bud set, you know, chonky buds, you're going to get more of that botrytis. Now, one thing they did say um, as a recommendation, which I thought was tongue in cheek and um, I'm not really sure why they said it this way, probably because they don't actually grow cannabis, much as I really respect Zamir Punja and his colleagues. Um, they said that one way that you could maybe prevent cannabis um, is by uh, by drying the, the product at over 30 degrees Celsius. What do we think about that? Yeah, no, not, we don't not like so great. Yeah, no, no, yeah. we don't like that, right? <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. It's like yeah, people that so are doing it like tobacco. They're doing harvest botrytis, then they're, they're thinking about. That is, that is. This is, they had like a whole, I definitely, I'll put it in the chat, I definitely encourage people to take a look at it. It was just tons of good advice. And then there was this one section where I was like, mm, I don't know if I agree with that. You say uh, something <laughs> like that, it makes me question like everything else you said to me up to that point. You know what I mean? Like, but okay. Not if it makes sense though. Sometimes the science can be good, okay. but their personal experience is not. Right. Yeah. Sense. yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, I don't think that this was like, I mean, it sucks because the literal like diagram is literally supposed to be like recommendations for like control measures in flower and in post harvest, like you say. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is cool, but yeah, exactly. 100%. This is where the difference from craft versus the commercial stuff is going to be. It's like with uh, certain food products. 
you can't get the freshest stuff because it has to be pasteurized. It has to be uh, treated to be safe for the market. So the yeah. pasteurized cannabis will be dried at nine, you know, 30 Celsius, which is like above 90 degrees or whatever. It's hot. The nature's uh, spirits of the cannabis space, perhaps. But then you'll have like the small batch people, hopefully, that can dry it at the temperatures that they prefer to. And it'll smell and taste like it's supposed to. I don't know that this is really a thing, guys. I mean, in no. <laughs> all the that I've experienced has been on plants that have been growing, um, both in my own cultivation and in the, the commercial farms I've worked with. It doesn't get in bud rot drying, or if there are, they're not drying it properly. Or they didn't see That's it. The they thing. That's... On top of it. I mean, I'm just not. Yeah. yeah. How, many, how many of you have come across people getting bud rot? That it wasn't on the harvested plant showing up during the dry process. It's almost always, people find as you it. just said. Yeah, right. I think they it was either they're... already growing and they didn't notice it. That's the one way. And that's yeah, hard to or... prove, right? Because that's We're... forensics. But Easier then with... it's like PM, what you said, though. improperly drying it, for like, sure. PM doesn't grow on the product tissue. You get air, good air movement on the buds once they're dead, right? Once you can cut them all the leaves off or all the big leaves off and hang them um with adequate space from the plants around them it's in the cultivation room so the plants start growing really close to each other and some little pockets you don't get good airflow or whatever um so i think it develops always during cultivation i don't think it's something that we need to sort of ward off during the the dry necessarily um i mean i, I, I think, think you should implement a lot of things beforehand oh yeah and then you won't have that problem as little as it does come about. I agree. Like it has not been my experience generally, uh, but there's things outside of my experience, I guess. But I agree. I think it's usually somebody who just really poorly dried the plant. Either they're very new at this or they're dealing with a scale they haven't done before. That's, and maybe that's they decide the they get a little, yeah, <laughs> they started to get a little creative. That's called outdoor, first time outdoor. And that's called put a fan the in the Connex box. Yeah, the day before cut down, they're like, where am I going to put these 50 plants I decided to do outdoor that I'll have a pound on them? Hmm. I'm going to shove them in a spot way too small. We should do a horror story. I remember a case of this that somebody was telling me a story that they had like their bud come on, buddy come over to help them trim. And so they sent them home with like a big cola from the, the trim party. And I guess the buddy just like put it in a Ziploc bag and sealed it up. And oh, there you go. It, it wasn't dry. It was like no. <laughs> wet trim. And so it, it molded in the bag. So yeah, if you put like your cannabis directly into a Ziploc bag or a jar or something, that certainly would happen. Yeah. After working in the cannabis space commercially, I have two general advisements based on personal experience. One, don't trim your plants with a chainsaw. Yeah. And two, uh, don't dry your stuff in a, yeah, I know. Right. It's very quick very quick and very brutal um and then also don't dry them in a connex with a bunch of fans blowing in the hot san diego sun and you're gonna be okay you're gonna be okay so uh, we did have this abolished question we do i, I just wanted to give noah the grow a second as he's showing oh, off yeah. this beautiful garden to maybe uh talk through what we're seeing oh yeah uh decent right here and right in front of me that i'm videotaping the two in the back, those are rainbow belts. These two right here, Dosilato. And then these ones right here are triple burger. And then these ones uh, are new. I have to take a look. Oh, triple burger. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And man, it turned out, it turned out really good. Nice. You've been smoking on it. I know you harvested it and you were like getting to that point. Oh oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the rainbow belts was the one that everyone was like telling me, but I think that the triple burger turned out just as good, if not better. Rainbow belts has a good name and it tastes really good. I think that the triple burger is probably going to be stronger for your like OG heady smokers that like that. No doubt Dude, this is the kind of bud when you trim in it, you gotta take razors to the scissors like every like ten minutes. Or like scissors won't even open. It is, it <laughs> is very high, super high THC. I mean, that was the first thing everybody told me. It was like, holy cow, this will just knock you down. So, yeah, absolutely excited because we I got just had a horrifying a thought. That going. Um, I've got that trichome was... forge with you and. Uh... Baked pone over there, right? And you've, you've got a huge pheno hunt of triple burger. Yeah, I as think well. it's 30. I can't remember. 30 some phenos of it that we're going to think we're going to be searching through. I can't remember. We got a lot going. It's the very first run going through that that build that we've been working on. Excited for you guys. Sorry to cut you off there, Matthew. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's okay. I was cutting you guys off. I was just going to say that I was sharpening some knives recently, and you guys were talking about knives earlier before the show. Um, so I didn't get to flex on you with my Super Seal Maximet. Spider Co. But um, uh, you know, if you don't, uh, you're supposed to wash the blade off, obviously afterwards, so you don't have all those fine metal partic- particles. And if you were such a person who was going to sharpen their scissors or whatever, and you didn't do that, that would be a terrible, terrible thing. Because uh, you know, um, probably shouldn't inhale metal particles. Yeah, metallic. You know, that, that's like worse than heavy metals in uh, your yeah. intestine. <laughs> That's a good point. Anyways, people that home sharpen. I had a home sharpener for my um, blades. I, I lost it. I just repurchased one for my scissors because they do go dull after a while, and you could just buy a new pair or you can sharpen them up. Um, but yeah, you definitely want to clean them well after being sharpened for sure to avoid that kind of catastrophe. But uh, one question from Abolished before Spartan goes because it's about that time. He says, "Would feeding them in uh too much into flour potentially make your flower time last longer if we are going for ripe buds what do you mean by feeding them too much i think like, he's saying like i've seen like newer growers give too much nitrogen and then it, they get uh plants that don't really want to finish sometimes they like seem like they're going to finish slower than like a healthier plant would if you dial everything in like it would push back in essence if you overfed yeah or <laughs> just yeah it's not reaching its maturity as quickly as if everything was otherwise uh, taken care of okay um i don't know if it would push back senescence unless you're waiting for maybe the fade <laughs> if you're if you're waiting for just the fade to to be your call for for harvest then maybe yes but if the other that, thing I've seen is garden. people say it's it's too much uh, nitrogen makes it veg longer through flower. So it's not really flowering as much if you have too high of a nitrogen ratio or give too much nitrogen that it's not going to bud as well. And you get like curled leaves and like not really thick buds. You get these no, kind of wispy, it's, weird It's possible that like, tomato plants are uh, known to be non-producing tomatoes and there's too much nitrogen in the soil supposedly. Is that not incorrect? Yeah, you can grow a lot of leaves. I mean, that's mostly, I think that's mostly true for indeterminate tomatoes, but I am not totally sure, to be honest with you. I hear that a lot, but, you know, people say it, but yeah, like, I'd like to, I'd like to know the plant physiology 
I haven't actually looked that I really up. I don't think you're gonna. I mean, I'm not advocating for giving too much nitrogen, and I taper nitrogen down the last week. That's why you're actually seeing. I'm not flushing my plants, but I am on a ripened blend, which has a lot less nitrogen in it. Um, but I, I don't think you're going to be able to lengthen your harvest or lengthen the the delay the ripening period by keeping them on a higher nitrogen dosage. And if you were able to do that, a lot of growers would probably do that to, to sort of juice their harvest numbers and keep them in, in flowering longer. Um, so if anything, you know, in hydroponics, I kind of feel like if we're pushing them too high on electrical conductivity, um, which is sort of akin to, I guess, giving them too much, but in a different kind of way to an amended grow. Um, if anything, you know, when the plant starts to get stressed, it, it may start to speed up its processes um, to kind of get through with what it needs to do before it, you know, becomes intolerable. So I kind of feel like when you run too high, um, the plants may finish too fast and that's not a desirable thing sometimes, but I don't even think the effect is really in, in, intense on that side of it either. They but flower they, sooner they, out of stress almost. That way. I've seen that they, where they flower sooner out of stress, whether it's root bound or maybe too much nutrient, yeah, they'll be exactly. small and crappy harvest, but it'll be a, a quicker harvest because yeah, it's just, just like to trying to survive caught. and sexually reproduce. Put out seeds, right? Create the next yeah. generation before they die. That's like a dying pine tree often will have a bumper crop of pine cones because it'll put like all of its energy into like, you know, making those seeds for the next generation. Great point. I want to give Spartan Grown a moment to and shout outs before he gets running on over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show in about 12 minutes. Yeah, man, I just want to shout out everybody. Uh, you know, even active duty military even though we're talking about memorial day which is people that they didn't just give some of their lives they gave all of their lives the ultimate sacrifice so um you know shout out to all of the the veterans that were remember remember i know this is just for united states but still shout out to all the the veterans that we're remembering for the uh for the holiday shout out to everybody i hope you have good days with your families and friends hopefully an extra day off that you can celebrate um, and I'll just uh, leave it at that. And I'll see everybody over at the Mission Groves Grow Show coming up here in about 10 minutes. Love you guys. Keep growing. Much love, Spartan. Love Thank you, as always. Great having you. Ah, we did. Peace out, Spartan. We got one uh, question from Andrew Dollins after uh, Spartan just jumped out. It says, when to go from veg to bloom, newts in the bolt. So after you flip to flower, some people do it right on the day of flip. Some people wait until they start to see some bud set. Some people like to do maybe their nutrient line says to do a transition phase for a week or two weeks. Uh, they might even have a specific, you know, different dosages for that little period. So I think there's a lot of options out there, but Doc is usually our guy with the uh, newts with lots of knowledge. And I'd be curious what you would uh, answer this question from Andrew Dollins. Yeah. So if you're following a hydroponic feed chart, there's a early bloom blend usually um you know three-part blends two-part blends are necessarily simpler because you have less control over sort of what you're blending together so oftentimes there's just a veg blend and a flower blend and i would switch to the flower blend in that case when the plants start bolting um but if you're on a three-part blend 
then that bolt or the stretch is synonymous with the early bloom mix. Um, I've, I've said that before. I think we should name that early bloom mix the bolt mix because it's really for the time that the plants are doing that vigorous growing. Um, but it has higher levels of P and K. Um, so it's also for sort of encouraging the plant to enter into to flowering. Um, that's the basic thing that changes between veg and, and flowering newts is you increase the, the proportion of P and K relative to N. You don't really lower N much in sort of an overall PPM sense um, generally. But Jack also mentioned the transition. I, I think the transition is part of the plant process. Like the plant's going to be in vegetative growth um, where it's investing its energy in adding more plant to itself. It's growing into being a bigger plant. And then usually because of a light signal change, but with autoflowers, they do it just sort of on their own time. The plant will transition into flowering. That transition, like, is a is a period of of growth of the plant sort of stops vegetative growth and starts redirecting its resources towards the the coming bolt. This period of really aggressive growth that it's going to go through. Um, with autoflowers, it's hard to time that because you don't know exactly where it starts. With, with photoperiod plants, it starts when you flip to 12-12, like the plants start to adjust themselves and it takes about a week. And then you'll notice that you'll start to see pistils on the plants and the plants start taking off and, and growing. At that point, they're properly flowering. Um, and the first two weeks or so of the flowering is traditionally being called the stretch, but I like to call it the bolt. So I probably answered that more than I needed to. No, that was well answered. And I, I do think that it's probably more beneficial to think of it as a bolt because that has like a positive connotation versus like stretch where we kind of, as yep. growers, I think we do tend to negatively associate it because it's like, oh, this thing that's difficult to manage and maybe I'm growing into my lights or I'm running out of space because in those first few grows before you get comfortable and dialed in, you might make those mistakes that very uh, large portions of growers make, myself included at times, um, especially with a new strain. Like it could just be a genetic thing. Like this more sativa leaning stuff can, instead of doubling, it might quadruple or five or six X in height. And like, if you're not accounting for that, it can make things really difficult. But if when you know that you can just say, oh, I'm going to veg it or train it a certain way. And then I can do a way shorter veg time and still get a pretty massive plant and good yield and take advantage of that bolt which is you know ultimately what we're all trying to do as growers is like do the minimum essentially in veg that you have to do to get the plant to the size spartan grown i think if he was still here would kind of answer i think he measured out his maximum space with like the pot the light and everything and then he figured out okay you know my plant can be this big and if i flip it and it doubles or triples and i'm still within the window of safe space between here and the light and i think everybody kind of needs to come to that conclusion of how much it's not just the the plant height you have to consider is your pot on a riser is it sitting on the floor uh you know is it elevated up even higher than that uh there's a bunch of different things how do you have a big hps hood that is you know taking up a foot of your tent or is it a little thin bar that takes up a few inches um yeah. all those things kind of factor into how much you need to grow before and this is kind of like 
a little bit different approach on the question. They were saying for newts, I was thinking more like when to flip from veg to bloom, but <laughs> I was getting sidetracked there. And I just realized we've only got six minutes left. There's about six of us. So that gives us about a minute each. And I'll give it over to Doc first for final thoughts and shout outs. Yeah, indeed. I, I agree with everything you were just saying there too, Jack, just to, to wrap that. Um, absolutely. And I still come across a lot of growers that feel like I have to wait until my canopy fills in to flip or whatever. Um, nah, you can fill in your canopy during the bolt. Um, the plants that you're looking up there at the, the Dr. Coco Grow Cam, um, they were like three weeks old. So like 21 days from seed gets wet when I flip those to flower and they were just little tiny plants. And I'm like, I hope they grow. Um, otherwise it's going to be pretty embarrassing because I'm growing those that, that tent on the house Dr. Coco show. So this is my excellent segue into my little outro. So um, come check out my Patreon. I do the Ask Dr. Coco show every Monday night. Um, it's a fun show. I do a little like lesson topics and stuff and answer a bunch of uh, questions that you guys can submit. So check that out on my Patreon. I'm Dr. MJ Coco. Check us out, of course, at CocoaForCannabis.com. Um, we're in the middle of the spring auto flower challenge. Um, I'll start showing you that grow next week when I sort of move the, the camera and set up the new tent there. But um, my auto flowers are entering the bolt in the next couple of weeks is going to be a whole lot of fun to see how big, um, well, how big my sticky dicky and my electric blue will become. So I'll, I'll share that with you guys next week. Check it out. Um, we're going to be gearing up for the plant training grow challenge, which starts in August. Um, if you want to grow with us in the next grow challenge. Um, thanks, Jack. Thanks, panel, Tao, Spartan, Noah, everybody. It was a lot of fun. Matthew, of course. Um, thanks to chat. Really appreciated the questions. Hopefully we did justice to all of them. Um, glad I was able to make it here on time. And yeah, grow love. We're very happy you did. Lots of great contributions tonight, as always, and uh, very thankful for your showing up and definitely make sure to support Doc. Next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Yeah, I have to echo all that sentiment. Uh, good chat questions, definitely. Um, honestly, I think we did better with having more questions, questions and answers. I kind of enjoyed that um, a little bit more personally. I want to remind everyone that, again, on June 3rd, I have that IPM masterclass. So you can use code GAYS for $20 off for tickets. I have the link in the chat. And um, I'm also going to be doing another one on July 29th here in San Diego, too. So if you can't make that one, you can make that one. And there's other ones we plan on doing in Oklahoma and Virginia um, and several other places, perhaps even in Canada. So if you'd like to uh, you know, suggest some more, you can uh, let me or Jordan River from Growcast um, uh, know. So check out the link and you can also check out my content on Zenthanol. And also for professional inquiries, check me out at zenthanol.com. Thank you very much. And uh, definitely make sure to reach out if you're interested. If there's enough interest in your area, you could have a Xenthanol near you soon, which is uh, fun. Pestapalooza could be local. And I'm glad that you're getting to get out there and travel and see the people locally. Uh, nothing like connecting with people in person. I'm happy that more of that's happening again. And the community gets to spread knowledge and, and share some of their crafts and trades and things in person, face-to-face uh, -face out there. So very thankful for that. And next up, we've got Noah the Groa. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I, was, I had a good show today. I had a good time with everybody. 
Uh, got to show off my garden, everybody. I uh, been putting a lot of work in. You know, you know how it goes. Sometimes you get a little lazy, but I've been hitting all the marks, and um, my last harvest was really killer. And uh, looking forward to this one. So, uh, I'm Noah the Grower. You can find me on Instagram, and I'll see you all next week. Happy to have you. And man, it feels good when you start dialing things back in again, especially if you've been a little bit lazy for a little while and you know what you can do. And then you're like, all right, I'm going to commit myself. And then you actually do it and you fucking just crush it and everything lines up and you get that really killer crop and you get to share it with your friends and enjoy it yourself. That's uh, something really special and something that we should all kind of uh, aim for here in the cheap home grow community. And uh, growing with my fellow growers, we all kind of aspire to get a little better each time, I think, learn a little more about this plant and figure out new and fun ways to grow it affordably and get the best quality with that said yes. our last panelist of the evening last and certainly not least the american one hello jack thank you as always for your impeccable hosting duties and shout out to the whole panel i love hearing everybody's take on all these various growing things and i love the input from chat shout out to chat and yeah, I am the American one on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. Most of you know where to find me. And uh, you can hit me up on the DM and IG on the IG and uh, have a safe Memorial Day. And yeah, uh, homage to all those. And uh, yeah, peace out, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, Tal. And, and very much thanks to all of the service members out there who gave their lives and those who are still actively serving and past all the veterans. Uh, always appreciate them, whether it's Veterans Day, Memorial Day or not. I think that it's very important having family that serve uh, to show show the respect. We might not agree with everything that's going on, but just try to be respectful to those people that really sacrifice a lot. And in today's case, many their own lives. So uh, very thankful for that. It's a humbling reminder that we have these freedoms here that we have in the States because of men and women like that out there that do those things. So super thankful. Awesome show. Uh, we got to at least 13 questions that I counted here in our little chat and probably many more that uh, I didn't have written down. So that's always a good time being able to take and answer questions and give lots of different perspectives from lots of different growers. I really enjoy these shows a lot. Sorry that we didn't share the uh, link out there, but we just had so many good questions. I just wanted to keep the information flowing. Uh, a lot of the time when we do send the link out, it's a lot of the same guys and I do enjoy hanging out with all of them, but I, I will uh, sh share that link again in the future. Don't worry. Uh, people like Dog Doctor and others who are regulars when we share that link, you will be back soon. Uh, count on it. The Cheap Home Grow is going to keep on rolling. We'll be back next week and many, many more weeks to come, years to come. And uh, you can count on that. Keep on growing, everybody. Peace and love. Catch you all next week. Grow or love, everyone. <laughs>